Hey y'all, I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 191. Well, how many of y'all live under a rock like me and are not watching, what is it you watch? Yellowstone. Yellowstone. I almost said The Walking Dead. No. (laughs) Because that was another one of those shows that everybody watched that you watched that I didn't. Everybody was like, Yellowstone, 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 Yellowstone. And I'm like, well. You need to get on it because it's I will so eventually. Good. I will like six years from now when it's over and done and everybody's like, you're just now watching that. That's when I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. And then you'll want to talk about it. And I'm like, bitch, I don't remember. True story. That's what happened with Longmire. Mm-hmm. But what did come out that, you know, still haven't watched, but what did come out was the new Dexter. And I'm super excited about that. I haven't watched that. The new or the old. Yeah. I only, because I watched the old one when Netflix had disc rentals yeah and it took too long and i'm very impatient and so i think i only got to the third season or the second season that was one of those that was probably one of the first or maybe the first show that colby and i binged together like it was like a okay don't watch it until we're together kind of thing yeah you know what i'm not missing out on because they're not missing out on okay that's a stretch well you know i limbered up before this patreoners (laughs) limbered up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh god oh hey so thank you so much and welcome april c from unsure marianne a from unsure dana s from wisconsin wendy w from unsure and she's not just saying that because she, this girl does know state abbreviations we don't have y'all's addresses so if you want your letter and your stickers and all the things you gotta send us your address yes please we love sending the stickers and the thank you letter but We do have Laura P. from Wisconsin as well. And rounding it out, Rachel H. from Texas. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. If you want the thank you letter with all the stickers like you just heard us talking about, plus all the bonus content that they're getting on Patreon every single week, we're talking an episode per week extra, plus all the backlog. If you want all that extra good good, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Well, speaking of TV, the guy I'm going to talk about tonight, Sam Baltrusis, he is a man of many talents. And among them, one talent is that he can see dead people. And he's been on a shit ton of paranormal shows, even Fright Club with our boys Ghost Bros and Jack Osborne. He's written dozens of books on the paranormal And he's a historian first, so he really researches. And like our friend Alicia that we had on during 31 Nights of Halloween, he is a tour guide in Salem and in Boston. So seriously, he's a paranormal jack-of-all-trades and basically a master of them all, TBH. But there is one paranormal event that still haunts Sam, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Ooh, okay. Picture it, Salem, Massachusetts, 2016. It was the night before Halloween, and as I mentioned, he was a tour guide in Salem. Well, this one night, he had been hired by the Essex Historical Society to be part of an event they were hosting at a famous historical house. The event was called The Haunting at Witch Hill, and it was to be a night filled with spooky tales, cocktails, and music. And the dress code was steampunk, or Victorian steampunk. The house where the event took place is Pierce Farm, And it's actually in Topsfield, but Sam lived 
in Salem at the time. But it's right next to Danvers. And I was like, oh my God, that's where Carrie lived. For like the first couple of weeks. And then I lived, I can't even remember the place that I went now. It was just past Topsfield. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go into details about the house just a little bit, just to give you some background as to what's so spooktacular about this location. It dates back to the 17th century. The foundation today still includes some of the portions of the original 1690s farmhouse. Damn. And who used to own that farmhouse was Isaac Eastie, who is Mary Eastie's son. And she was charged with two counts of witchcraft, but she had hid in the cellar area on that property while they were searching for her to arrest her. A literal witch hunt. She was sadly found, arrested, found guilty, and hanged for her so-called crimes. Then later in the 18th century, the house went under new ownership. It was Captain Benjamin Crowninshield. He bought it and his vision for the property was to build a mansion and use the estate as his country retreat. Later in the 19th century, a railroad tycoon, she, she. You said that so well. <laughs> Thank you. I really was like, damn. <laughs> his name was Thomas Wentworth Pierce. He expanded on Crowninshield's idea of a country retreat, and he created a 500-acre gentleman's retreat. Skip to the fall of 2014. The property was purchased by Essex Heritage trustee. His name was Sean Ward. So he and his business partner have turned it into a historical place that all people can enjoy and learn about the history of the area. And they even have weddings and stuff like that. There have been several ghost hunters to visit the location, including the Tennessee Wraith Chasers. They got an EVP in the basement that said Mary, which they believe points to Mary Eastie's ghost still being there. There's been many people who felt the energy of the house and even saw dark figures lurking in corners. But back to our main story and main subject. Sam Baltrusis. He was to tell an eerie story in the library. So he selected to talk about one of the owners and the dark past in their family. So he chose Crown and Shield. You see, he had a cousin named Richard, and he was basically the black sheep of the family. When Sam arrived at the event, he met with Sean, remember the board trustee who purchased the home, and Sean told Sam, hey, for added spookiness, felt this walking stick that is thought to be crown and shields would be great for you. So Sam and his friend, who was basically his assistant for the night, Mike, they were like, excellent, because it gave him a prop. And he decided that he could use that cane to signal Mike to do sound effects. So like three knocks with a cane cued the lightning. When Sam held the walking stick, he did feel energy and he said that he felt like he was transported back into history. So he was excited to use it for sure. Now I do need to note that Sam did pick up on a dark figure in the library with him, but like I mentioned, he sees dead people and so this wasn't a big concern for him. The show must go on and he was doing it for entertainment purposes, not ghost hunting or anything. So the story about Richard Crown and Shield was that he had many addictions in life, gambling and alcohol being the main two. Because of these, he was known to be the bad seed of the Crown and Shield name. He owed money to people and he did whatever he could to get money to feed his addictions. Well, one time that included basically being a hitman. His target was a boat captain named Joseph White. Richard crawled through the window and attacked while Joseph slept. He used a club and hit Joseph repeatedly until he died. And then he took a knife and stabbed Joseph 13 times around his heart. Oh my God. 
And this crime took the nation by storm in 1830 and is said to have inspired both Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And for Edgar Allan Poe, it was the Telltale Heart. And you read that for uh, 31 Nights of Halloween mm-hmm. like last year. So Sam retold this story and he was in it to win it. You know, he was showman. What What's Richard Gere saying? Razzle dazzle. Oh, I was like, I need more context, please. <laughs> You know, Chicago. But he got a little into it. Like, too into it. And even though it was all for entertainment purposes, Sam basically turned his storytelling segment into a seance, inviting any spirits to speak through him, enter his body, etc. You know, really got into it. Mike, his friend and assistant for the evening, said that he saw someone walk behind Sam while he was doing the whole seance portion. So Mike was like, okay, something's here. But again, this was all for entertainment and not really to summon a spirit. So it's kind of like... I mean, it's like he had his fingers crossed, you know, like, enter my body, but not really. Right. But it didn't matter the intention, because something had changed between that performance and the next few. There would be several groups throughout the whole night. Each room had a different performer. He had about 10 minutes before the next group was to enter. And this is when Mike told him that he had saw someone or something walk behind him. And Sam was like, hmm, okay. And he remembered the figure he had seen as well. And he would have blown it off again, but he wanted to check himself out in the mirror and just make sure his costume and all that was okay. So he used the mirror in the library. When he peered into the mirror, what he saw wasn't his reflection. What he saw was him, but kind of deformed. He couldn't really understand it. So he had Mike take a picture of him on his phone. And he's like, Mike, do I look okay? Like, do I look normal? And Mike's like, yeah, like you look fine, you know, and he's just kind of weirded out. But He put his best game face on because the show has to go on. The show has to go on? Who are you? The show must go on. Oh, well. The show has to go on. Well, I am sorry. Well, this next group, he felt the energy of the group. And he said that what he felt is that they were laughing and judging him and that they thought he was a bad person. That took a turn. But Mike was like, oh, my God, that's awesome. Like, you did so good after the group left. And Sam was like, like, no, I don't. Like, I don't think they liked it. And he was like, oh, my God, they were like applauding you. Like, you were doing so good. Mike's definitely the hype person. Mm -hmm. He's the you. I'm the. Yes. They're never going to like me. Yes. Well, Sam pushed through, tried to clear his own jumbled thoughts, and he managed to make it through the six performances that he had. But at the end, he was exhausted. He didn't seem to be himself. He was distant. He was sweaty. He just wasn't Sam. But he had just performed for six groups, and that would drain anyone. So Mike wrote it off because this was one busy night in a sea of busy nights in October. And, I mean, he had been doing stuff every single night. At the end, Sean, the owner said everyone was raving about Sam. And again, Sam's like, no, they weren't, you know? Yeah. But also Sean was like, hey, come and see the basement where Mary Eastie was, you know, supposedly hiding out, whatever. So Sam and Mike went on the tour and Sam said he was feeling all the energy and stuff and just needed to leave. Sean was bummed because he wanted them to stay for the drinks and the food out in the barn. But Sam wasn't feeling himself and he was sober for a decade. So he didn't want to put himself in that situation to tempt himself with alcohol. Normally, he'd be fine around it. But with how he was feeling now and knowing his old patterns, he told Mike he needed to go home 
now. Very responsible decision for him to be like, you know what? I can't do this. I'm not going to put myself in a compromising spot. Like, gotta go. Yeah. Because when he was younger and he discovered he did have abilities, he self-medicated with alcohol. And so he really knew, okay, I'm not feeling myself. This is a trigger. So no. Mike was still on guard because he could sense a shift in Sam's behavior, but he had no idea what he was in for on the ride home. Mike was driving and in the passenger seat, Sam was stewing over his performance. And you know how Tiff talks to herself with her hands and stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, that's basically how Sam was acting. He was talking to himself in his head, but his mannerisms mirrored his silent conversation. So Tiffany's possessed. Okay. Well, Mike asked what's going on with him and Sam again said that he felt like everyone was judging him and thought he was a bad person. Mike was like, nah, did you hear Sean? People fucking loved you. You did great. But Sam couldn't shake what he was feeling. So they rode in silence for some time, but Mike kept side-eyeing Sam just to see if he was okay. Because, you know, friends just know. Well, about the third side-eye, Mike saw Sam pour in sweat again and he seemed to be fighting with himself Again, but not with words this time. He was fighting to maintain control over his body. Sam said his hand had a mind of its own and he couldn't make it stop. Before he knew it, he reached up and unlocked his door and then opened it. All while Mike is still cruising down the street. Luckily, Sam had a seatbelt on and Mike was able to stop Pulled the door to before Sam was hurt. Oh my God. They made it to Sam's home, just chalked it up to his exhaustion and stuff. So Mike said, hey, I'll check on you later. Sam said he was going straight to bed because he was so tired and just so drained. And he did. He laid down and tried to rest, but soon he woke up and kind of in a trance-like state, went to the balcony off of his room. He said he was filled with the desire to jump off the balcony. Oh my God. Luckily, Sam was able to become aware of what he was doing and didn't jump. Mike returned to check on Sam a few days later, and Sam told Mike about him sleepwalking to the balcony and how he wanted to hurt himself. But Sam's behavior had Mike on edge because he believed Sam was drinking again. Because Sam was following his old pattern, he self-isolated where he wouldn't answer calls or texts, which is why Mike came over unannounced. When Mike questioned Sam about drinking, Sam snapped. They were in the kitchen where they were talking, and in Sam's rage, he grabbed a knife from the butcher block. Oh, no. To Mike. That sounded so fake, but it really wasn't. I really was like, oh, no. But it sounded like, I don't know. Yeah. To Mike, he just saw Sam standing there with a blank stare on his face and a knife in his hand. But to Sam, he saw him hurting Mike, stabbing him, and killing him. Sam came to again and started putting all the weapons he could think of, like knives and anything sharp, in a bin and gave it to Mike and told him to leave. He's going to deal with it. He's okay. Just take this. And Mike did because he didn't know what to do. And everyone's an adult. Sam knew this was probably paranormal, but he didn't know to what extent or what he was dealing with. During this time, Sam felt like he had a dark cloud of frustration and fear lingering over him, and he just couldn't shake it. But what he did do, because he knew he couldn't control his body, he started tying himself to his bed so he could sleep without the fear of walking and jumping off the balcony again. He thought that would give him some peace of mind and let him get rest because he was so exhausted but he was wrong 
Sam woke up to things going bump in the night. And so he said out loud, if you're a spirit here, you're not welcome, you know, and did the whole spiel that we know to do, you know? Right. He ain't afraid of no ghost. He thought that would settle it and he could fall back asleep. But that's when he heard some disembodied voice and what he could make out was it was saying, do it, which Sam took to mean to harm himself. Sam knew he was fighting something powerful when he couldn't keep control over his own body and thoughts. During these nights, Sam experienced sleep paralysis and saw a man hovering over him. Once he felt like a man was on top of him. And you know that part in the Green Mile where John Coffey takes the illness from the woman's body and it's like flies? Yeah. So imagine that kind of exchange, but it's not flies. It's like his soul and the man's soul were like intertwining. So kind of like that Halloween decoration at Spirit Halloween where the thing holds up the thing and then it has the the fog. Yes, yes. Sam continued to self-isolate over the next few days and he started to not eat. He was embarrassed to let people know that he thought he might be possessed. He started doing some research about possession and stuff, but remember how he can't control his own actions sometimes? It was like he wasn't in control and stopped researching, and instead, he posted on social media that he was looking for a skeleton, and it needed to be a real human skeleton. Oh, I'm sure that went over real well. Right? Well, one of his friends, who's also a paranormal author, Joni Mahan, she reached out because she could tell he definitely wasn't himself by these posts on social media. She reached out over Messenger and let him know that she was there for him. And she then went over to his house. And Joni's sensitive and has been since childhood. So she could sense a negative spirit around him. And the more she watched Sam's behavior, she realized that the spirit had attached itself to him and it was most likely in the second stage of possession. She said first is infestation, which the spirit is in the home and stuff. Then the second is oppression, where the spirit starts to take control and alter the person's personality. Okay, I was like, can you tell me these steps? Because I don't know. I missed that day (laughs) at paranormal school. Well, Joni witnessed Sam fighting against whatever was taking control of him. She could see him, you know, switch back and forth. So she knew she needed to act fast. She got in contact with a friend of hers who's a shaman named Michael Robichaud. He rushed over to spiritually cleanse Sam and see what he, like, sorry, and see what else he could do for him. What he picked up when he was with Sam, he said that he could see an evil spirit that was trying to control his life and ruin it. Michael said that the entity committed heinous crimes and was from a prominent family. He said that the spirit was 26 and was killed. Michael went on to say that the spirit had anxiety issues and was not happy at all. And he really liked to be loud and very obnoxious. So Sam was thinking it was Richard Crowninshield who was trying to possess him. You know, he had opened himself up to him after all. But Richard wasn't killed. He died by suicide in his jail cell. Can I just say, I feel very attacked that this spirit uh, <laughs> was anxious. And what was the other thing that you said anxious, that described me? Uh, anxious, loud, obnoxious. Yeah, so like literally. And not happy. Yeah, so like literally described me. I mean, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get it. I was like, well, I'm not from a prominent family and I haven't done heinous crimes, but uh, everything else, check, check, check. Very anxious. A lot of people think I'm annoying and (laughs) I mean, I'm relatively- I mean, you are Jeff the Mongoose. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm relatively happy, but I mean, (laughs) a student loan repayment could be, make me just way happier. Well, back to the real possession here. Uh, Michael laid Sam on the floor and used holy water to create a barrier around him. Michael explained that he was going to call on his spirit guides to help expel the negative entity. He also relies on Catholicism 
prayer too. And like he, he's not just one thing. He's like, no, all beliefs are valid. And you know, like Mm -hmm. all that things, all that things, what? All the things. He was able to bind and banish the negative attachment. While this is going on, Sam felt and heard a ringing in his ears. And when he kind of like leaned up, he saw spirits battling each other and he couldn't believe his eyes. And he ended up passing out. When Michael woke Sam up, Sam felt clear. And almost instantly, he went back to his old self. Sam saw a future for himself again and no longer felt embarrassed by what had happened. He knew that he lived to tell his tale and give others guidance to not do what he did. Also, he did some more research about Crown and Shield because he couldn't shake that it was him who attached himself to Sam. Well, he found out that he was 26 years old when he died in prison. And Sam then was able to recall that night at Pierce Farm, he had experienced some information dump, some kind of transference like that. And so he was getting just kind of memory overload, you know, like things that didn't really make sense to him that night because he wasn't himself. And that's why. But he was able to think about something. And he said, you know what, I think the spirit said he was murdered. It looked like it was suicide, but he was murdered. But it didn't make sense to him at the time. Also, and of course, if it is him, well, no wonder he was so anxious and thinking they're all going to laugh at you. Right, exactly. Well, he found out that Richard Crowninshield was hired by Joseph's family to kill him. Well, Joseph was never married and never had kids, but he did have a niece who also acted as his housekeeper. Well, she married into the Knapp family, which was another well-to-do family too, but... You know, people are going to be greedy. And the stepsons were the ones who hired Richard to kill Joseph so their mother-in-law could inherit his money. And also, this is just an aside to why they did it. So Joseph used his will to get his way over things. So if he wanted something done and people didn't want to do it, say his niece, he would threaten to change his will or change it. That's gross. And the sons, in their understanding of the law, which it's not right, They thought if the will wasn't found when Joseph was dead, their mother-in-law would receive more money than what she was allotted in the will. So they stole the will and then went and hired Richard to kill him. They clearly missed that day of law school. Yes. I say all of that to say if Richard talked about who hired him, they would be implicated. And so it's not a far off theory to say that Richard was killed in prison to keep him quiet about the shit he knew. Because again, they were a well-to-do family. However, unlucky for them, others had seen and heard about what was being plotted. So they were charged with the crimes too. You can watch Sam tell his story on an episode of A Haunting. I think it was actually the 100th episode and it was called Provoking Evil. Sam's experience is also in the book, Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts, Legends, Victims, and Sinister Spellcaster by Peter Muse. Last name, I'm not sure. And then a book Sam wrote himself called Ghost Writers, The Hallowed Haunts of Unforgettable Literary Icons. I used all of those for references for this story. So that's a little haunted history and a possession story. And seriously, if you see Sam's picture or hear his voice and you actually watch paranormal shows, you are bound to recognize him. And so now you know a little bit more about his personal dealings with spirit. It's so interesting, like, that he got so embarrassed. And if that was someone that he was helping, he'd be like, don't be embarrassed. Da, 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 da. Right. 
But when you're supposed to be the expert, you know, mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, but you're actually, I feel like, more susceptible because you're putting yourself in those positions more often than somebody just who has something in their house. Right. Well, and now, like he has said, he knows what he went through and survived it. And now if someone is dealing with that, he can sympathize and how Joni did for him, he can do for others. And luckily for him, he had people in his life who recognized those changes and were like, no, like you need help. Exactly. I think this just goes to show you, even if you think oh, we're just doing it for fun or whatever, you're still opening yourself up. For sure. So even an expert can make mistakes. Yeah, that's why I don't fuck with Ouija boards. Opening yourself up to shit. No, thank you. I just want to really feel at work. Do you? I don't. I do. Yeah, no thanks. I'll just listen to your stories. That's all. That's as much as I need to feel work. Because mm. what I believe in, I believe in. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, Yeah, no. Yeah, men in black, not a thing. Something coming across on a fucking Ouija board and getting me? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. It may not be real, but I ain't trying. Mm -hmm. I'm not stupid. (laughs) I mean, I'm dumb sometimes and I say some weird shit, but I'm not stupid. (laughs) No, you're a clever, extra clever mongoose. Touche. And a changeling. All kinds of stuff. The more you fucking know. (laughs) Well, are you about to depress us? I mean, no more than your average murder story. Okay, well, you've been doing some doozies, so... Yeah, I mean, this one's sad, but it's not... You may recognize it. I've actually seen a Dateline and a Forensic Files on this story. Ooh. This story is about Karen Pinnell. Karen lived outside of Tampa in a little kind of sleepy town called Oldsmar. But she worked in Tampa at the airport for American Airlines as a customer service rep. So... How the fuck she did that? Like, the person handling all the things, shout out to you, Karen. (laughs) For sure. Anybody who does that, I don't know how you deal with people when they are at their, like, most, like, rah! Right. My flight's delayed. I'm missing my luggage. I'm going to miss my connection. Mm -hmm. You know, all the airport mumbo jumbo. (laughs) Karen was the only daughter of six kids. She had five brothers. Holy, holy. Can you imagine how much their grocery bill was? Oh my God. Karen was beautiful, like worked as a model before, beautiful. She'd been married in the past and they got divorced and she'd had a few boyfriends and all, but she had recently got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. But on the day of October 11th, 2003, she didn't show up for work. It was a Saturday morning, and her boyfriend, who said that because of her MS, she had been prone to blackouts, which, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really know that that's a thing, but I could be wrong. He wanted to go over there and check in on her and just make sure everything was okay because she wasn't answering his calls and text messages. When he gets there, the door's unlocked, and he's like, well, this can't be good. Why is her door unlocked? You know, single woman living at home, lock your fucking door. So he goes inside, and, you know, when you walk in her house... You know what? Uh, You know who left my back door unlocked? Me. Yes. (laughs) And I never go out there, so it's always locked. Yeah. And I did something. I was like, why is that? Carrie. Sorry. (laughs) Well, out in the country, though, it's probably just going to be like Slender Man coming in your house. The Black Eyed Kids and all. Oh, God. But they're going to be getting through your doggy door anyway. I mean, it is big. (laughs) You saying you got an extra large pizza uh, attacker? <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> lock your doors and your doggy door. I do that sometimes to mine and Colby will be like, you forgot to lock the back door. And I'm like, fuck. 
So when you walk into her house, the front door, it has one of those like half walls that kind of splits the entrance from like the kitchen living room area. Like the pony wall? Yes. Okay. I think. Sure. So he walks in and he looks over towards the kitchen and he sees Karen's body laying there in a pool of blood. His name is Tim Permenter. So he calls police and he's like, I need help. She's laid on the floor. She's dead. Like, I need help. So the police get there, put him in the back seat of the patrol car like they would normally do. Remember the guy they kept in the back of the patrol car for like four Way or six hours? Yeah. yeah. So while he was back there, he called one of Karen's best friends, Catherine, to say like, look, Karen is laying on the floor. There's blood everywhere. She's been stabbed. It's awful. I don't know what to do kind of thing. So police, of course, check out everything in the house. They gather up all the evidence. They take Tim back to the police station and he's very cooperative. They find out that Tim had recently lost his job because he quit and he was a car salesman at, I think it was a VW place, and he met Karen because he sold her her car. Police ask him like, where you've been, what you've been doing, like give us a timeline of last night because they knew that Karen had been murdered the night before. He says that he went over to Karen's to give her a gift the night before at about 7.30. It was a calendar with cats all over it because he knew she'd love it. Well, he left at about 7.30, then went to his roommate's girlfriend's house like a town or two away of course they're like you didn't stay the night on a friday night like it's friday night y'all didn't have a sleepover kind of thing and it's like no no no, because she has to work on saturdays remember she was supposed to go Mm -hmm. to work of course police are going to keep their spidey senses up because it's the boyfriend he found her right all the things while all of this is going on while they're you know interviewing tim they're they're investigating the crime scene and they see that karen put up one hell of a fight. She had lots of defensive wounds. She had been stabbed 16 times and there was blood everywhere. They found that she had a sliding glass door and the little silver bolt that like you put in to lock it so you can't open it. That was on the floor. The cable box was open outside. There was a bird bath that had been knocked over. You know those heavy ass like concrete bird Mm -hmm. bath. I was like damn okay. And her purse had been dumped out all over the countertop. So they're thinking maybe this is a burglary gone wrong because with the cable box the you know shit outside. But there wasn't any like pry marks on any of the doors and there weren't like soil disturbances or anything like that but also her being stabbed so many times didn't really lend to a burglary gone wrong that lends to more aggression and personal right they found a pizza box and it had like three pieces gone out of it they found a grocery receipt you know stuff like that in there that they took it as evidence to but The one thing, I've been burying the lead on this, the one thing that they did find that was like, this is definitely not a robbery, was on the wall above Karen, written in blood, were the letters R-O-C. Isn't that a skincare brand? I think so, actually. (laughs) So, of course, the forensic investigators and the detectives are like, what does this even mean? Does it stand for something? Is it somebody's name? Did she die while she's writing it you know like what does this mean because there was blood on her index finger like you know she wrote it okay so you've heard of a dying declaration where someone like whispers like (laughs) donna like at the end it was her yeah you know that kind of thing so this this would count as a dying declaration if she's 
you know, indicating who did this to her. On the, because I told, you know, I told y'all this was an episode of Dateline. On the Dateline episode of this, there was just one part of an interview with her brother that just stuck out to me. And this is kind of a weird place to put it in. But anyway, he was saying, because you remember how I told you she put up a hell of a fight. He said that during the viewing of her body that you could see some of the like stab wounds on her hand and so they had to like like you know the flowers had shifted where they had to like shift the flowers up and that just broke my heart like you don't think about I mean you think about if there's like facial wounds or you know something like that maybe they do a close whatever but you just don't think of them seeing those types of injuries yeah I don't know, that just like crushed my soul. So police are continuing their investigation and they start kind of teasing out Tim's alibi. They get with his roommate, George, and he's like, yeah, he spent the night with me at my girlfriend's house in Moon Lake, which like I said, is, you know, like a town or two, it's like an hour away. The girlfriend even corroborates that Tim came up there and they're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, now who the, like who, what is this rock? that we're finding here. Well, Tim tells them that Rock... Oh, it used to be, I think, a sitcom too. ROC? Yeah. Like, his name was Rock like that. Oh, I don't know. Well, Tim said that Rock isn't a what, it's a who, and it is Karen's ex-boyfriend. Ooh. Oh, I thought we were going to get a dun-dun-dun. Oh, this is more of a ooh. Oh, I felt like it deserved a dun-dun-dun, but what do I know? I'm just the sound effects over here. I was about to say, who are you, the producer? Rock was not an unsavory character, but not like a savory one either. Is that how you say that? Like, Why do you have to talk about his looks? <laughs> he had a great head of hair. It was like the hairline people dream of. Why are you looking at me when you say that? Because I know you dream of it. <laughs> so Rock and Karen had lived together for about a year, but they had a, what's the word I can never say? Rocky relationship. Girl, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I, I just knew in my soul that you were going to be the one to make that pun. But tumultuous, I never can say that yeah, word. And I did it. Okay, well, I always want to say it and fuck it up, And but they had one. Rock had a rocky pass, Donna. Oh, Anyway, so he had some legal issues. He had a history of drug abuse. and But the question we all want to know, did he have a rock-solid alibi? Maybe. Dun-dun-dun. So when police find out who he is, they go to see him. He was working as an insurance guy at an auto body shop. You know, the guy that like gets all the shit together. So they go to see him, and he tells them... Well, first, he's like, what's this cop pulling up for? Like, you know, he's very, like, street savvy, but, like, wants you to know he's street savvy. So, he's like, I knew immediately the unmarked car pulling up. I'm like, <laughs> okay, sir. So, he tells... Well, tell- you know what, Rock? I have 21 years of fucking Law and Order SVU. hmm And before that, fucking murder she wrote. Uh-huh. So, suck on that. <laughs> So he tells police that he and Karen had a good relationship at the start, that she had been married, like like I said before, for like five years. And after she got divorced is when she got the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And she really relied on Rock. He was the one, say it, Donna. <laughs> he was her Rock? Yes. Uh, he would give her her injections. He would help take her to her appointments. You know, he was her... Rock, Doc, Doc, Rock? No, that that was like a stretch even for you. <laughs> okay. But even though he was there for her, their relationship was abusive. There were multiple times that the police had to be called to the house because they were in an altercation. 
Oh, gosh. Of course, Rock paints a picture much differently than Karen's friends and family. You know, they talk about how he was the one, he was the aggressor and that that she had filed a domestic battery charge on him and that she had multiple occasions where there was bruises on her that Rock had done. But Rock, of course, paints the picture where they were both the aggressors. He kind of minimizes his participation and maximizes Karen. So it's a, he said she should, either way, it was a volatile relationship where there was abuse and they finally ended it. Now, apparently there's this roll top desk that was Rock's that he had when he lived with Karen and Karen wasn't giving it back. And he was still calling her, even though at this point he had, you know, moved on to a different city. He had a new girlfriend, but he was still being like, give me back my fucking roll top desk. Well, those are expensive. Legit, they are. I know. I thought that too. And I think it was even the, I can't remember, because this is, because this episode was on Forensic Files, Dateline, and Solved. And I can't remember which one it was that was like, said, this expensive piece of furniture. I was like, yeah, damn right it yeah, is. Yeah, and what if that was like in his family or something? I don't know. So Rock is being cooperative, but in his like, KG has a history with police. So mm-hmm. he's being cooperative, but not really like, they told him Karen's dead. And he says nothing because he's like, well, it wasn't a question. What do you want me? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's you didn't you didn't ask me anything. So I'm not giving you anything kind of thing. So they ask him, where were you? And of course, he's like, well, I'd have to look at my calendar. I mean, again, he's cagey. He's helpful, but he's cagey. Yeah, it's annoying. I'm like, you're so cool. Oh, I have to look at my calendar. <laughs> I mean, how long ago was this? 2003. No. Oh, <laughs> when they find rock like has it been a week because honestly I'd have to yes see. no no no. i know yes it, i mean it wasn't like the next day yes yeah. it was like a few but it's still like i'm so busy sir I'm, i don't know it just was the way you just he's just ugh. <laughs> he's just the worst not the worst in the story but he's the worst because i'm just thinking i mean yes i would have to confer with you and colby to tell me what i was right. doing that day but i would be like let me look at my calendar first. well he also doesn't want to say something wrong because then they're going to be like why did you lie well i didn't remember no no, no i know but we hate him okay <laughs> we don't hate him the most but he's annoying so please check his alibi with his girlfriend and using his cell phone records all the things and it really did prove that rock was not the murderer he he did as you said have a a rock solid alibi exactly so we're going back to the drawing board womp womp okay you really are trying to be the sound effect engineer today (laughs) they take just one effect (laughs) yeah because the rest should be cut (laughs) speaking of cut so they cut the sheetrock out of karen's house where it had the letters rock on the wall they start to analyze it and they realize that the letters rock are written in blood over dried blood spatter so they know that one rock didn't do it so it was somebody close enough to karen that they knew the name rock and also it was somebody's attempt towards the end to turn attention away from themselves. So they did tests where they used animal's blood and created a spatter, then would literally write the word rock over and over and over again to see at what point did the blood dry that it wouldn't smear. And they figured out that it was about 20 minutes after that blood spatter had occurred that the name rock was written. The other thing is that Karen was left-handed and the blood from her finger where she 
air quotes around, wrote the name Rock and Blood was on her right hand. Well, they didn't know her that well, apparently. The other thing was, you know, given the fact that there would have to be some amount of pressure applied right in the thing, there were no fingerprints in the writing of the ROC. But instead of fingerprints, there were like dots, like uh, um, almost looked like polka dots, they said. And the forensic analysis realized, wait, this pattern matches the garden glove that was on the counter. And there was only one glove, not two. Mm. So they get all the garden gloves to do the analysis to like compare and, and see if it would leave the same pattern. And it does. So they know that clearly someone had written with that garden glove the letters ROC. So we know that it was written in the glove and Karen was left-handed. Also, the way that the letters were written, the beginning of the letter had a good streak of blood and then it kind of faded out because, you know, even if Karen had written it in her finger, her finger wasn't bleeding. So she would have had to have written the letter, touched some more blood, written a letter, touched some more blood and written a letter. But based on the autopsy, they knew that that was physically impossible for Karen to have done because the first stab wound that Karen sustained was in her back at her T8. And it did basically a 90% severing of her spinal cord. So she was immediately paralyzed. Now, at T8, would she be able to raise her arm and write? Yes. However, it was pretty high. Not Well, it would have been a high reach for her. But the other thing, though, is that the other stab wounds were in her pectoralis muscle, which would have made it harder for her to reach. She still would have been able to do it without a pec. But the other stab wound was in her aorta. So she would have literally not had the blood pressure to sustain her to reach, write a letter, come back and tap blood, reach, write a letter, come back and tap blood and do it again. She would not have been able to like muster that amount of energy because of the aorta being stabbed. I feel smarter that you just said all that, but also I'm like realizing that I'm real dumb because you said T8 and all I could think about was a calculator. Oh yeah. Okay. So your spine, you have your cervical vertebrae, your thoracic, lumbar, sacral. So they're all numbered. So you have 12 of your thoracic. So think like neck to tummy, like low neck, not high neck, low neck. Cause it's like cervicals, what your, your neck moves. Yeah. And then you have the thoracic vertebrae. So the eighth one of those. Ew, okay. Think like T4 is nipple level. And then that kind of gives you an idea of like where she would have, okay. where she would have been stabbed. So again, from the spinal cord injury, she would have been able to still reach, but the stab to the aorta is what really impacted her blood pressure to not be able to do it. So the more police talked to her friends and her family, they realized that Karen wasn't actually exclusive with Tim. If you talk to Tim, he's very much like, oh my God, she was the love of my life. Like I wanted to get married to her, all the things. And her family's like, "Mm, she had nicknames for all of her boyfriends, which reminds me so much of me and one of my friends. So she called Tim the car guy and she was talking to this other guy that she called Dr. Pilot because he was a Dr. Pilot for British Airways. And they had been sexy texting and all the things. But when they looked into him. <laughs> Who says sexy texting? I didn't say that. I said sexy texting. That, that You said sexy texting. Oh. 
Because sexting. Because, 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 because. There was a, God, I wish I could remember it. I told my brain to remember it, but there was a um, imitation text that one of these shows did and I busted out laughing. It was like, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it literally made me LOL because it was the least sexy, <laughs> like, hey, sex kitten, like something, but way worse than that. Yeah. But they proved that it wasn't him because he was actually on a, like an international flight at the time of her murder. They look into her ex-husband because while they had a seemingly amicable divorce, she was hitting him up for increased alimony because with her MS diagnosis, she didn't think that she would be able to cover all her medical bills, that kind of thing. So they looked into him and he had a rock solid alibi as well. He was like out of town on a diving excursion. I was going to say, so we're back to Tim, but he had a solid alibi too, right? He did. Oh, okay. It okay. didn't. Uh, I couldn't remember. I thought he did go to the lake house or something. He, he did. But the more they digged into Tim, they realized that he was not how he necessarily presented himself. Mm. Now, I heard two separate stories of this same kind of event. On one of the shows that I watched, I can't remember if it was The Forensic Files or The Solved, they painted the picture to where police had been called to a domestic violence call with Tim and Karen. And when the police officer got there, ran their information and all, he told Karen, hey, you know this guy's like on parole, right? And what? Right. And Karen was like, yeah. And they're like, do you, do you know what for? And she didn't know the real reason. He was on parole for murder. What? Yes. So the story that they told on Dateline was that Tim had told Karen originally that he was a Navy SEAL doing all the top secret missions and that he had like scars and stuff on him from his time as a Navy SEAL. But as time passed in their relationship, you know, the whole like three or four months they were together, he eventually got up the courage to tell Karen that, okay, actually, I wasn't a Navy SEAL. I had been in prison for more than a decade on a murder charge. So he did tell her about the murder charge? I don't, I I don't know. What, like I said, one thing made it sound like he eventually told her that he was in prison, but not the correct reason. And it was this officer that was like, girl, watch your back. And, And I'll tell you a little more details about that later too. But this other made it sound like, he eventually came clean and she was like, oh, okay. So he in his early 20s had started up an escort business, aka it was sex work. It was not an escort business. He says that he was bringing in six to $7,000 a day. Good God. He ended up getting in basically a gunfight with a rival pimp. And that's what sent him to prison. We do know that there was an occasion that Tim had choked Karen, but there was never a police report filed on that. But I never got clarification if that was the time that the police came and told her what his charge was, but nothing ever came of it. They didn't arrest anyone. There was never a report filed. I guess I didn't know that they could tell you that. I mean, it's public record. While all this is happening, the forensic investigator is still doing her damn thing and she tests the pizza box. Remember I said there was pizza. Mm -hmm. Remember there was three pieces missing? Yeah. In Karen's autopsy, she had not eaten any pizza. Someone ate the damn pizza. Yeah. So she sprayed some things on it that like lets the fingerprints show up, like the amino acids and the fingerprints show up on a porous surface. And the fingerprints on the box 
matched Tim. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing about that. The pizza was delivered at 8.48. He said he was gone by 7.30. Oh, shit. So that's one of the ways that his alibi starts to go south. Yeah. Meanwhile, at this point, though, the police have arrested him on a parole violation because he himself said that he was out of town and that with his friend. Out of bounds. Out of bounds. Well, you know what I mean. Like, out of his allotted area. Right. He had left the county without permission, and they were able to arrest him on a parole violation. So, they have him in jail. See, I was trying to not be that person, but when he said, it's not a what, it's a who, it's her ex-boyfriend, I was like, sketchy. Right. Well, and his whole thing is, as soon as the police found out that I had a murder pass, like, you know, my past with whatever, I knew they were going to suspect me, and blah, 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 blah. So, I, I tried to be cooperative, blah, blah, blah. His old buddy, his roommate recants his original story and says, yeah, he did come up there, but he called me later at like, I think it was like 930 and said, hey, can I come? And he was like, I didn't really want him to, but you know, he insisted. And so he met him at this gas station and and Tim followed him up there. And he said that once they were at the girlfriend's house, Tim told him that he had killed Karen. What? And the friend is like, I was scared for my own safety, all the things. But then once Tim was already arrested, he said that that's what had happened. And that basically Tim had been like, say that I was here the whole time. Also, while Tim is in jail, he calls his sister and he's talking to his sister and his sister's like, um, you need to be careful what you're saying because remember, all your shit's recorded. And they have recordings of him being like, okay, so what we got to do is if I have to send a letter or whatever to the family, because remember how I said that that police officer had come to the house on that call and like no charges were pressed or anything like that. And I was like, mm-hmm. we'll talk more about that. Why I think that that really happened is because he's saying that we need to get the family to sue Pinellas County because they didn't do anything at that moment. And what they should have done was arrested me and all this could have been avoided. What? So if the family threatens to sue the county, they'll drop the charges on me because they don't want to be sued. Oh. They don't want to be sued for hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. And the sister's like, um, you really should be careful what you're saying, you know? Also, the fact that there were pieces missing of that pizza, like he legit, they ordered the pizza and the pizza got backs it up like hey this is when i delivered it there was a guy there with her gave me weird looks which of course hindsight's 2020 so of course he's gonna be like yeah that was weird now that you were oh that she was murdered you know but there was a man there so he fucking ate the pizza after he killed her yeah that's Mm. And just like, a yeah, you know, I really got to clean up this crime scene, but I'm really fucking hungry. So he worked up his sweat. What the fuck? Like, what a callous piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He honestly might have given the guy a weird look because he probably said, oh, shit, someone could identify me here. Maybe. And he probably didn't think like he would be able to be seen or something. You know what I mean? When the pizza was delivered. Yeah. The other thing that he fucked up on was when Tim called George to say, hey, I'm actually going to come up. He called from Karen's house when he said he was at his house and his cell phone pinged at the tower right by Karen's house. Oh my gosh. And it was the same tower that his cell phone pinged at when he called police. So there's no way that he was really anywhere other than Karen's house right there because it pinged on the exact same tower. The other thing he did was when he was in the back of the patrol car and he told the friend that she had been stabbed, police didn't even know she had been stabbed at that point. It wasn't until police got right on top 
of her and looked like were inspecting her body that they knew that she was stabbed. Based on his story, he had walked in, looked, saw her laying in blood, called the police. There was Mm -hmm. no way for him to have known she was stabbed unless it was just like an amazing fucking guess that she had been stabbed from the position that he said he was in when he saw her in blood and called cops. Wow. On the forensic files, they said that they had gotten some DNA out from under her fingernails. And at first, they had a hard time. I don't know if you say figuring it out because it was kind of like a mix. But they were able to run this special DNA test that only pulled out male DNA. And it did match Tim as well. Tim went to trial. And of course, in as a narcissist does, he testified on his own behalf. And he was very aggressive towards the prosecutor. And so the jurors were really able to see that side of him. So he was sentenced to life in prison and is still in prison today. He was on the episode of Dateline to like defend himself and say that he didn't do it, but he fucking did. And as a just little aside, Rock, his name was Rock Herpich. He actually died in 2018 at the age of 60. Oh, gosh. But poor Karen. I mean, you know, her brother even said, like, he thinks that after her diagnosis of MS, it kind of, you know, it well, one, it changed her. But it also, she became where she was a little more interested, kind of in the bad boys, you know, that kind of thing. And, and Rock even said he thinks that's why she was drawn to him and their volatile relationship. And But that's not in, like, a victim-blamey way. But, right. you know, she just, after that, she was more drawn to those types of men. And I don't know, I just wonder, had she known earlier, because it seemed like she was really trying to get out of the relationship with Tim and that, you know, he had come over that night with that gift to like win her back over Mm -hmm. because he was in it to win it. And she was like, I'm seeing other people like, you're a fucking murderer. You have strangled me. Went to work with a fucking turtleneck in the dead of summer in Tampa because she had bruises on her neck from him fucking strangling her. Like she's like, boy, bye. Right. He comes over one more time to like win her over and loses it. And in like the most coward way behind her back. Mm hmm. Because they were even saying, like, from the spatter marks, you could tell that it, like, all happened on the ground. Like, she was incapacitated from the spinal cord injury. And I don't know. It's just like... He just kept going. Kept going. And then he ate pizza. Literally zero remorse. And it's just, even with his... And you know he didn't pay for the pizza. Oh, no. Just the arrogance that he exudes from just the getting on the stand. I mean, I'm saying you have the right to defend yourself. But I'm saying, like, the way he was on the stand Mm -hmm. and his interviews and just, like, ugh. He is, ooh. I just love, too, that, like, he thought he was so clever, and his mm-hmm. trial only lasted a week, and it took the jurors four hours to convict him. Yeah, he, like, did the most on the most asinine things, really flubbed it up on the most basic shit. Right. Had he, I mean, this is not how to get away with fucking murder, but, I mean, had he not put the name Rock, I mean, they probably really would have been leaning more towards an unknown assailant. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. no, that's, I mean, of course, that's how, by him trying to point blame to somebody else, he mm-hmm. he pointed blame to himself because yeah. it had to be someone that knew her life and knew her exes and all of that. Meanwhile, Rock's over there like, what? Right? Yeah, I want my fucking desk back, but shit. I just want my desk back. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. Also, of course, it's Tim and he loves her with all his heart, blah, 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 but put the the blood on the wrong fingertip. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Boy, you don't even know if she's left-handed. And that's a good trait, motherfucker. Oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, though, I was originally left-handed. My parents switched me. I mean, I know you know that mm-hmm. because you're my best friend and I say that all the time, but I was supposed to have been left-handed. You would have been better. I like le- I like bat left-handed, kickball left-footed, all the things. <laughs> left-footed. <laughs> Actually, my ADHD is so bad when I would do kickball before my ankles were really, really terrible. I would be like running to kick the ball gun, which foot, which foot, which foot, which foot, fuck, 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 and then I would just kick. Legit, I would change the foot every time because I wouldn't know what to do. Oh, gosh. What do I do? Okay, weird. But in all of those shenanigans, Karen's lost. And that's the most important thing is that, you know, Karen, this young 38-year-old lost her life to some douchebag that couldn't take rejection. Yeah, that it's so senseless. And her whole entire family loses the glue that kept them together Mm -hmm. because he couldn't just move the fuck on. We hope you enjoyed this episode because I did. We haven't done like what you can learn in a long time. But I think what you can learn from this episode is that you have to protect yourself because Mm -hmm. your guy was embarrassed that he's the professional and he got possessed. And Karen was in these relationships with these men that were harmful to her. And she did. She got out. But... Mm -hmm. It was Tim who just couldn't take no for an answer. But, you know, she did her best to protect herself, too. You know, pressing charges and all the things. But you just, I don't know, protect yourself. Lock your doors. Like I didn't do Donna's. Mm Mm-hmm. I said, I could have been murdered, Marley. And Marley (laughs) said, Sada. Yeah, she's like, get this bow out of my hair. Oh, gosh. Thank y'all so much for listening and all the support. But more importantly, remember, creep it real and and don't don't get get scared. scared.